Worldwide KFUO now invites our listening audience to a live Bible study from St. Paul Lutheran Church. as we consider the uh, three readings for next Sunday. And you uh, have those before you. Uh, The first Old Testament lesson, Ezekiel 18, 1 to 4 and 25 to 32. And we're going to look at this this morning. Uh, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, there was the accusation against God that he was punishing the wrong people. There had been this communal view of Israel that if the nation Israel did something they shouldn't have, then everybody got punished. In other words, the accusation against God was injustice. There are innocent people who have done nothing wrong that are being punished for sin. And they didn't do it. Never mind the fact they had committed other sins. But they were focused on this. And this is the accusation And God basically says, you're not going to be able to repeat that anymore because there is perfect justice. Perfect justice. And then he says, just that, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. There it is. God's word is going to be applied to each individual depending on what they have done and not depending on what parents have done. Now, this was hard for them to grasp. Remember in John 9 when they asked Jesus about the blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They were still clinging to that, that maybe the parents had done something and God was judging the son on the basis of what the father had done even at Jesus' time. Here, God is saying, that's not the way it's going to be. Verse 25, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? 
Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he will die for it. For the uh, injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is right, just and right, he shall live his life, because he considered and and turned away from all the transgressions that he has committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. So he outlines how he's going to deal with this. Now, one of the important things right here is the fact that what matters is what you're doing, what you're believing the last day. See, you may give up righteous ways and turn to unrighteousness, and then you may repent and turn back. That's fine. That's fine. What matters is when the Lord Jesus comes again, are you believing and clinging to him? Or have you gone off and gotten yourself lost and tangled up with the sins of the world? That's what he said. And then he says, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Now there's, we need to talk about this. When God says that to you, is he saying, put your house in order, get rid of the sin, do it now, you will live, it's up to you. Is that what he's saying? You have to repent and turn from your sin to start with. Then we'll talk. Yes. Okay, the comment is, isn't he talking to people who already have faith And therefore, they have the strength to do it, where if you have no faith, you can't. You're on the right track. When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, can a person who at that point doesn't believe make a personal decision to repent and believe? No. We do not believe that that is possible. Why? Because the person is a sinful person, 
And without the help of God, none of us can repent and believe. Now, repentance is a term that sometimes really trips us up. And we think, well, repentance is because God has told you that you're under His judgment and punishment. But if you stop and think about it, when you're under God's judgment and punishment and know nothing of the gospel, then knowing you're under God's punishment and judgment does nothing but work in you one of two attitudes. The first attitude is, well, I can't be that bad. And you start justifying and rationalizing your thoughts. Well, I may be a little bad, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Okay? I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or list whoever you want. And you immediately start putting yourself in a pecking order. And suddenly what you find out is you're relying on pure works. So, that's not what God wants to happen. That's a self-righteous attitude. That's the Pharisee kind of attitude. The other attitude is you fall into complete despair. There's no hope for me. And then you wind up like Judas. Okay? Because there's no hope. That's not what God wants to happen. So you don't get true repentance if you just preach the law. This is one of the foremost principles in the Lutheran confessions. You only get true repentance when the judgment and wrath of God is upon your sin. But you are told there is the forgiveness of sins freely for Christ's sake. Then you avoid despair. You don't have to go the route of organizing your works to prove yourself better. It is by grace. There is never a time when we should give only God's law, only God's judgment, and no gospel. Now, believe me, as your pastor, I have wanted to do that to you. But there's no future in it, because that doesn't bring true repentance. You may be so mad at your kids or whoever or a friend, and you just want to let them have it and be done with it. 
But if there is no gospel, there won't be true repentance. If there is no hope for forgiveness, there won't be true repentance. So you have to speak both law and gospel. Both law and gospel. Not just one. It's very critical. So, when God says to the individual, repent and turn from your transgressions, let iniquity be your ruin, okay, then he gives a promise. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. It is not God's will that you die. It is God's will that you live. And if you believe his word, he will work the repentance in you. He will give you the forgiveness, and he will give you a new heart. And he does that with each individual, and there isn't some corporate judgment, but that's what God wants to work in each person. Each person's heart. We talk about the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary for us. And he did, but it's appropriated to us by faith. It's appropriated, it's there for every human being on earth. It's given to those who believe. And so we ask the question, why doesn't God just work faith in everybody? Because people won't let him. Won't let him. Reject the message. So, there are those who come to faith and those who refuse. But God's desire is that no one dies and everyone has eternal life. So, he keeps calling people to repent and believe, just as Jesus did. Repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. What was the kingdom of God? What was at hand? Jesus was standing right there. He is the kingdom of God. He was at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe in him and you will live. So that's kind of the focus of the Old Testament lesson. Any questions about that one? Yeah.
Yeah, what, what, uh, what the comment was, was this applies directly to us because we have the same problem. You ever going along life and you, and you suddenly realize you're just in a mess? You've just made a stinking mess of your whole life. Everything's out of whack. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. And there's repentance and faith and a new start. Okay? God's promise is clear. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, all right, let's move on. Because Philippians 2, there is lots. Now, Paul begins this section appealing for them to be of one mind. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, of course there's encouragement in Christ. Any comfort from love, of course there's comfort from love. Any participation in the Spirit, yes. Any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." You're going to underline something, underline in humility, because that's going to be the focus of the next verses. Verse 5 through 11 are some of the greatest verses about Christ in the New Testament. It's a, a kind of hymn that talks about Christ. It puts everything in perspective. So let's read the first part of it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so what Paul holds before us is the humility of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go through this carefully. There's a lot here. Christ did not have to acquire the divine nature. 
He had it. He was God. He was God. He was. He had the divine nature already. But that was his manner of existence in heaven. He was God. When the time came, as Galatians says, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. He took on another mode of existence. In his love and in his grace, he was willing, by his incarnation, to take up another form of existence as a servant. He did not have to cling to being God with all the glory and majesty, greatness and splendor. He was willing to also take on the mode of existence as a servant. So he was both God and servant, God and man. In other words, he took manhood into the divine so that he was both. Now, not 50% divine and 50% human. 100% divine and 100% human. He took on that mode of existence. But the real key word is he emptied himself, okay? He emptied himself. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's not talking about leaving something behind, it's talking about assuming something new, the form of a servant. He did not abandon his divine attributes and divine nature. He was still God, the form of God. He could still use divine powers. We have it in the New Testament, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the lepers. He knew what people were thinking. So he was still God. But in addition to being God, he emptied himself by taking something into himself, the form of a servant, made in the likeness of man. Christ entered the human manner of existence. He did not come as a king with power and majesty and splendor. He will do that the second time he comes, but not this time. But as an ordinary man with no sin, like us. We t call this, because it's based on humility, his state of humiliation. That is, that portion of his life when he humbled himself 
and took the form of a servant. That corresponds to particular parts of the Apostles' Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. That is his state of humiliation, and it's defined by this. He did not always use his divine powers in the state of humiliation. So when they basically asked him, when's the end of the world? He said, only the Father knows. Did he know if he wanted to? Yes. When he was hanging on the cross and they taunted him and mocked him and said, come down, could he have done so? Yes. But if he would have, our salvation would not have been complete. So he did not. He put his divine powers aside to be a servant to save us. Okay? That's what we're saying. That's what this is describing. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay? Now, did he stay there? No. Let's go on. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The state of humiliation ended with Jesus Christ's burial in the tomb. It ended. He's not going to do it again. Because by his humiliation, he earned our salvation. The rest of the creed is the state of what we call exaltation. Descended into hell, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated at the, seated at the right hand of the Father. Again, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Descent into hell is in the exaltation because when you read of the descent, into hell. He did not go to suffer hell. He went to proclaim the victory over hell. So from that point on, it is the state of exaltation, which is defined as he will never, ever not use his divine powers again. For the rest of eternity, he will use them. But here's the unique part. He's still true man. He still remembers what it was like to live in this world. He still knows what pain is, what death is, what suffering is to this day and always will. Because for that time, he took on 
the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. So the state of humiliation, the state of exaltation, helps us define how Jesus Christ came to save us. By taking on the human nature, being both human and divine, but at times not using his divine powers when they would get in the way of what he needed to do to save us. And then when it was over, not putting aside those divine powers again, but using them for the good of his people forever. That's why these verses are so important. So very important. Okay. We're teaching the eighth grade confirmation class this right now. Okay, Going through it. as we study the creed. Yes? When, okay, the question is, when Jesus was telling parables, was he using his divine power? There are some tricky things in here, and one of them is we never say, well, when Jesus did that, he was doing it according to his human nature, and when he did that, he was doing it according to his divine nature. That's dividing the person. We don't do that. When Jesus Christ was telling a parable, it was the God-man Jesus Christ telling the parable. All we know is that at times he didn't use his divine powers. But he was still just one person, not two persons. So we have to pick and choose who did this, but the person of Jesus Christ. Other questions? Yes, Don. Well, uh, the question is, are we going to see Jesus as true God and true or true man? You're going to see him as the person of Jesus Christ, and he's going to have all the glory and majesty of God with nail wounds in his hands. With nail wounds in his hands. The divine marks of salvation. So, you know... Has anybody already seen that? Well, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John would have seen it. But they never described, all they wanted to do was stay there. But they don't describe it for us. Neither do the women describe what it was like to see Jesus after the, uh, at the tomb, the empty tomb. We know that he appeared to his disciples and simply appeared in the room in a closed locked door. So, um, 
to tell you exactly is above my pay grade. Okay? But it will be spectacular. That we can be assured of. All right, let's finish this lesson. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do, uh, to work for his good pleasure. Now, a lot of people get confused by that passage, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And they immediately think, I got to do something. Okay? No. Who's he talking to? People who are already Christians. He's speaking to the Philippians. They are Christians. It is the life of sanctification. Trying to lead the Christian life sometimes brings fear and trembling. We realize God's demands, and we're not living up to them, but we repent and our sins are forgiven and we start anew. That's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about working your way to heaven. Because notice how it says, for it is God who works in you. Not you doing it yourself, God who does it, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right. Yes. Yeah, uh, God's Word says, I would not have known what it was to covet unless the Word you had told me thou shalt not covet, in Romans 7. I wouldn't have known unless you'd have told me it was wrong. We are so sinful, if God doesn't tell us we sin, we don't know it. That's how bad it is. So uh, God must reveal everything to us, everything. All right, other questions about, the, yeah, Paul. It, it is if you're God, <laughs> because humans are mortal, weak, and so taking that, when you created them, becoming like them is humbling. It is humbling. And so that should remind us that as human beings, we have no reason to boast. We better be humble because we're a long way from where we should be. All right, Matthew 21. And this is actually not through 27, this is through 32.
When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Shut up. <laughs> That's what this passage means. You're in way over your heads. Okay? Way over your heads. You're messing with the big boy. Okay? And they were trying to defend themselves so they could look good. So they could look good. They didn't want to look bad to either side. And Jesus put them in the position where they had to look bad to somebody. Had to. Therefore, he knew if he told them, my authority comes from God, were they going to believe it? Absolutely not. Not going to believe it. John's authority was from God. They didn't believe in him. Jesus' authority is from God. They're not going to believe in him. So he doesn't waste his time even giving them an answer. I love this story. I love this story. Okay. Now, it, it's fairly self-explanatory. They, they, they just were in a box. They couldn't win. You ask when Jesus did things like this, was he God and man? Man, he's let him have it. This is both. The best of both. Okay. The best of both. And then he tells another parable. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe 
him. All right, basically what we have here is the tax collectors and the sinners contrasted with the authority, the spiritual authorities of Israel. That's what it amounts to. They're contrasted. And it's not complementary. John came offering a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness was the foundation of the kingdom of God, not works. So John came proclaiming the kingdom of God is coming, and it's not by works, it's through the forgiveness of sins. That's a radical message in Israel. Radical, radical message. Because the authorities had basically set up a system and a teaching where you saved yourself by the works that you did, by observing the Sabbath, etc., etc. The Pharisees judged people based on their works. Therefore, the tax collectors and the sinners could not possibly be included in God's kingdom because they were so far outside of God's will. They can't be included. So, <clears throat> they were basically people without hope. Without hope. So, those who had no hope of earning their way under the false notion that works save, as the Pharisees taught, gladly received the forgiveness that John offered. They gladly received it. Suddenly, it wasn't by works, it's by grace. And all the tax collectors and the sinners and everybody that knew their sin and thought they were without hope grabbed it. There's the forgiveness of sins. There is hope for us. The Pharisees not only held to their self-righteous works, they didn't believe they needed forgiveness. They were doing it the right way. They didn't need forgiveness from John or Jesus or anybody else. They were righteous in their own eyes and thought they needed no forgiveness. Therefore, they rejected the offer of forgiveness by both John and Jesus. It's like two different worlds trying to live next to each other. 
and they just didn't get it. That's why they'd watch Jesus do a sign. They'd say, give us a sign. He'd heal somebody, raise somebody from the dead. And what do they say? Well, show us a sign. Okay? Because different spiritual worlds. So what he's saying is this. The one who said, I won't go and went, is like the sinner who was not living according to God's will, who repents and believes. Then there's the one that says, oh, yeah, I'll do it, but never does it. And that's like the Pharisees who never believe in Jesus Christ. So here's the answer to the question they ask. You know, they ask at the first, where do you get your authority? Verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness. There it is. And you didn't believe it. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed. And even though, then here's the real indictment. And this is a real indictment. When the Pharisees saw that everybody else was believing in John's baptism, they were still too stubborn to change their mind and belief. In other words, they're totally hard-hearted. Even in the face of what you are seeing happening in people's lives, and you're not changing your mind and believing. So that's another indictment against them. Another indictment. And so uh, the the uh, Jesus confronts them and basically shows them exactly what's happening as the kingdom of God is at hand. The Pharisees and scribes are rejecting it because it's based on grace and the forgiveness of sins. But those who have been told they have no hope are receiving the message of forgiveness and life. The law tells us we have no hope. It's back to the first lesson. Back to repentance. Without the gospel, there is no true repentance. There is only despair or self-righteousness. The Pharisees were hung up in the self-righteousness because they didn't believe in grace. It was by grace that God had saved the people in the first place. They were slaves in Egypt. And by God's grace, he got them out. By God's grace, they crossed the sea. By God's grace, they inherited the land. But it had all been lost 
in a system of works to earn your way, to put the focus on what you do. That's how it got out of whack. Jesus comes to correct it, again proclaiming forgiveness and eternal life by grace, for Christ's sake, through faith. And we talked about that in the month of August when we did the four solas. So uh, here we have a perfect illustration of the difference, the difference in how people think. Has it changed? It really hasn't, has it? There are those that think that if there's any blessing for them, it's by what they do. By what they do. And then there is uh, there are those who believe the gospel and that it's grace. And each and every one of us has to hold on to that because we are susceptible to thinking it's by works. That is constantly plaguing us, constantly plaguing us, that we think it's by our works, that we think it's by something we do or we earn. That will be a fight until we leave this world. We have to fight it, because that's what our hearts tell us. But in Christ, by grace, that is the kingdom of God. And that is the gospel. Okay, any thoughts or questions? <clears throat> yes. Yes. Well, they were Pharisees or Sadducees. Okay, so it could have been both. It could. Um, that's hard to say. They may have been members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, they may not have. Okay. We have elders today. Yeah. But it's basically pointing to those authorities that are holding on to the Pharisaic way of thinking. All right? All right. We're going to close a couple of uh, minutes early today because there's big doings in here shortly with the puppet show, and they need to get ready. And uh, so we're going to close. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We'll see you next week.